Hello and welcome to episode one of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell-Staten. I'm an evolutionary biologist and currently a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow. I came up with the idea for this podcast series as a graduate student at Harvard University, where I taught a class that focused on where the science meets the fiction when it comes to our favorite comic books, sci-fi movies, and TV shows. Now I'd like to expand that conversation and explore the science and the fiction with you. Joining me on this journey is my good friend, co-host, and comic book head, Arian Darby. Arian is a marketing manager at Warner Brothers, also known as the WB, which is home to superheroes like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. On today's episode, we talk about Peter Parker, his superhero alter ego Spider-Man, and the biology of his amazing webs. I interviewed Dr. Todd Blackledge, a professor of biology at University of Akron in Ohio, who studies the behavior and biomechanics of web building in spiders. We lean on his expertise to understand the biology of Spider-Man's webs, the limits of their performance, and what scientists in the real world have learned about the truly fascinating innovation that is spider silk. I really hope you're as excited about this series as I am, because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So today, man, we're gonna do um, we're gonna talk about Spider Man. Cool classics. I like that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do Peter Parker. So there's been you know there's been a lot done with uh, with Spider Man. They got the new Spider Man now, Miles Morales doing his thing. Um, but we're gonna keep it classic mm-hmm. on this episode. We actually might talk about um, Miles Morales in in a, in a later episode. Um, but today we're gonna focus in on okay. on Peter Parker. Classic iterations. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Ever since 1962, Peter Parker, the man. The original. Uh, so Spider-Man's gone through so many iterations. Um, you know, the, the themes over the decades now, because again, you're, you're talking about 1962, uh, when it premiered, when it premiered uh, the character in uh, the first, uh, I think the first appearance was in Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yep. And that was... Written by Stan Lee and I, I think drawn by Steve Ditko at the time, uh, but ever since then, the the characters, the crux of who the character is, has kind of remained the same throughout the the years, and and the the, the story and what drives him ha- has relatively may, remained untouched. But there's been countless kind of variations and uh, approaches to telling the mythology, if you will, whether it's from the big screen down to the comic books, and this idea about continuity in comics is something interesting too because you can have a lot of different stories of Peter Parker occurring simultaneously uh, throughout the years in different forms uh, of media uh, even within comic books itself and so there's never just one uh, story that's the story of Peter Parker Um, but I think the essence of the character is something that has endured throughout the decades, and and that's what makes it such a, an approachable um, a superhero, and that's why he's you know lasted now for over fifty years, uh, and is continuing to be iterated on uh, for years to come. So, 
that's kind of a, a quick background in terms of Spider-Man, at least from from my perspective and, uh -huh. and how I, I get into it. Spidey is kind of a really cool character because he's got so much going on with some of his abilities and things. Um, and, and then even just as a, a person and, and thinking about what he's been through and, and kind of having that be relatable, uh, particularly as a young person growing up, uh, there's just so many ways to uh, kind of find an interest in the character. So, yeah. Do you have like a favorite, you know, a favorite story arc from from Spider-Man? I'm a sucker for just the origin story, man. Yeah. Um, and there's just something about the way I'll say Marvel in particular kind of sets up their heroes that just feels very grounded and very realistic and very vulnerable. Um, that lets you have a crystal clear indication of who this person is and why they do what they do. Um, and I was even just watching a couple of the older movies not too long ago and, and seeing um, how that uh, take is portrayed. Uh, and even though they took a couple of different um, stabs at it in terms of how they approached it with Tobey Maguire movie versus kind of the more recent uh, Andrew Garfield um, uh, storyline, it, it's all there. Um, and how important family is to him, uh, particularly in the loss and absence of his actual parents and the relationship he has with his uh, aunt and uncle. Yeah. Uh, the friendships that he forms and the people that kind of connect to his life. Um, just all of the origin, that kind of, I would kind of say classic origin stuff around Aunt May and Uncle Ben um, and, and some of his childhood friends and some of his childhood, uh, you know, pr protagonists and the people that he encounters along the way. Um, you know, I, I think it's just something that's super, super relatable. Um, and, and when you're growing up and you're facing challenges and, uh, you know, you think about whether or not do you do you actually need to be imbued with a sense of power and superpower or whatever to be great in this world? And I, I think Peter Parker proves that you don't need Spider-Man's abilities or any kind of superpower to be uh, amazing. But I think there is this concept of um, not limiting your greatness and really being able to come into your own uh, and share that with the world, whatever talent it is that you may have or whatever um, you know belief it is that you may have, uh, being able to express that to the fullest extent, you can see in the story, that's when Peter's life completely changes. Yeah. And he goes from this person that is, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say ignored, but it has gone mostly unnoticed in his life, to someone that is dynamic and, and uh, you know, that just has all these, you know, kind of wonderful people around him and also some t challenges. But he's also kind of, you know, imbued with a sense of self-confidence that he can um, do it and he, he can kind of rise to the occasion. So, yeah. yeah, I think you hit on a lot of great points there. It's like, so I originally got exposed to Spider-Man through the, the TV series from, uh, it was it Fox, um, like the Fox Kids TV series like that that was my jam back in the day and the, like one of the things I, I really dig about Spider-Man and Peter Parker is like he spends a lot of time balancing who he is as Peter Parker and you know even before he gets bit by the spider he's a very academically gifted individual right and he's really into science and 
you know, then he gets bit by the spider and his life goes into into disarray. You know, his obviously like his parents are, are in the picture and, you know, that's a tragedy. His Uncle Ben dies and that's even greater tragedy. And, you know, and then he starts slipping academically and kind of goes into a depression and is trying to find himself as an individual. You know, but then, I mean, I would argue that it was actually like finding himself as a scientist was really key to his success, both as as Peter Parker and as Spider-Man, right? And, you know, so he gets bit, bit by this radioactive spider and he gets like all these, you know, awesome powers, Um, you know, but then he has to take it a step further and um, um, like use his scientific background to design this 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 super web formula, you know, that, um, you know, that he then uses. And I mean, I would argue that's probably one of the most versatile weapons in his in his arsenal. You know, like, yeah, he's super strong and agile and it's got a spidey sense and all that. But, you know, that mm-hmm. webbing like that's, you know, one could argue that's really what makes him the Spider-Man. Like without that, you know, he would be like a slight variation on like Captain America or something like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, Peter would not have the spice there. There, you know, not to borrow Ven- Venom term, but there was a definite, definite symbiosis there, where like Spider-Man wouldn't have existed without Peter Parker, and Par- Peter Parker wouldn't have existed without Spider-Man in terms of what the hero ultimately became because of the science and the background that he had and designing the web formula and designing the cartridges and creating the uniform and iterating on that and improving that and enhancing that and just having an understanding of how to at the beginning scientifically you know test his abilities and 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 figure out what works and what doesn't in terms of uh, you know his capabilities and to think about you know how to stretch those uh capabilities beyond um where maybe he he first thought the limitations were all of that came from the scientific mind um and again it's it's part of pointing back to the fact that he wasn't nothing quote unquote before he became spider-man at all like the yeah. kid was a genius he's a rock star um and, and you know that kind of plays out in different ways throughout some of the different comics as well as the movies you know like in the original toby Maguire movie he's kind of a straight-laced genius and uh, the kind of later version with uh Andrew Garfield, he's he's sort of more of like an alternative skater kid, but he's also still really smart. Yeah. Um, and this newer version that's coming out with Tom Holland, uh, Homecoming in July, it seems like he might have even uh, a bit of a computer science um, coding background to a certain degree too. And so it's all evolving with the state of the times uh, of everything in terms of just us culturally and societally. But that idea that this kid isn't you know, this kid's not a joke at all. He's not wasting his potential by any means. Um, he's he's definitely a smart kid in that he's able to marry the scientific angle with um, this crazy incident that happens to him is what um, kind of sparks a lot of the magic of what comes out of uh, the character. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think this was like, I mean, because of basically everything you just said, you know, like the intersection of, you know, science and the character and like the cultural significance. Plus, you know, we got, you know, the, the newest... Um, the newest rendition of Spider-Man coming out. I really wanted to to dive into who Spider-Man is, right, as, as a biological entity, you know. And, like, obviously there's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we could potentially dig into. He's got the super strength, he's got agility, spidey sense, all this stuff. But one of the things that really got me with this character is the webbing, right? And, mm-hmm. 
You know, so I want to spend this episode really talking about Spider-Man's webbing, like the functional significance of it, the reality of spider webs, you know, and, you know, how you go about bioengineering. Because, I mean, if we if we break it down, I mean, when we look at Peter Parker, essentially he becomes a bioengineer in order to complete his, um, you know, his persona as Spider-Man. Like he needs this critical component, which is uh, which is these spider webs. And in yeah. order to get that, he actually has to go in and make synthetic webbing. And, you know, so this is something that, you know, that a lot of actual scientists in the real world are, are thinking about. So, um, so today we're going to dive in and, uh, and, and uh, dig into, into some of the biology of, of Spider-Man and, and, his, uh, and his crazy webs. So to start off, um, I wanted to really get a, you know, get an understanding of Exactly. You know, like people say like silk all the time, like obviously, like, you know, we wear silk clothes and, you know, and all this. But, you know, when we think about silk, it's actually it's it's a biological product. So I reached out to um, to a professor at University of Akron, Dr. Todd Blackledge, who studies spiders. And so I got his insights on into um, into some some spider biology and the biology of silks. Uh, So I just started off asking him, you know, what exactly is silk from a biological standpoint? Uh, so let's see what he had to say. So there's a lot of different arthropods, spiders and insects and all of their kin that produce silks. And they're basically these fibers of proteins, the same general building blocks as your hair or your skin. These, these fibrous proteins that have a semi-crystalline structure. So if you could look at them at the kind of nanoscale, you'd see that parts of the proteins fold into these tiny, tight little crystals, while other parts are kind of loosely, chaotically wrapped around one another. And that makes these silks both strong and stretchy at the same time. So there's a bunch of different creatures that have evolved the ability to make silks. And spiders are one example. And they have really taken the production of silk to really its its highest level, where all of the world world's 64,000, or excuse me, all of the world's 46,000 species of spiders spin silk threads throughout their lives for a lot of different functions, not just to build webs, but to make safety lines as they move around or egg cases to protect their eggs or even little tents that they can retreat to when it's time to molt their skins. Yeah, so... Essentially, what we see, according to uh, according to, to Dr. Blackledge, is that spider webs essentially just uh, just proteins that they've used and co-opted for this pretty amazing innovation that they can use for for all these different functions. I mean, you know, just after listening to what Dr. Blackledge said, uh, I think first and foremost, I probably need to watch a little more Discovery Channel because I I didn't even realize there was multiple species of different animals that produced silk. Uh, I, I was sitting there and now I, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, okay, spiders. And I'm like, mm, caterpillars. And then I start drawing a blank. And that's yeah. as far as my biology uh, <laughs> learnings have taken me. But, uh, you know, with relation to Peter Parker in particular, I think the key words he used there were uh, strong and stretchy, and yes. we're talking about the science of elasticity and, and something that um, sort of maximizes the properties of both being able to stretch as well as strength in terms of tension and being able to support. Uh, because ultimately, he's saving lives. 
uh, and the science behind what goes into how he's developed uh, the technology into his own version of Silk is literally the difference between life and death, whether it's uh, stopping the bad guy or saving the civilian or even supporting himself as he's swinging through the city. Exactly. So, again, it just goes back to his, his genius um, uh, from day one, pre-Spider Bite. Uh, it was already there. <laughs> yeah. And that's huge. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that I thought was really interesting in Spider-Man Homecoming is, uh, you know, we get this, get this scene where he puts the suit on and, you know, this automated voice in the suit tells him that he has all these different combinations of, of webbing that he can use for, for all the, you know, for whatever his imagination can, can come up with. And yeah. so that actually got me thinking from a biological standpoint, you know, I mean, spiders themselves actually, you know, they have a lot of different tasks um, you know, to accomplish with these with these webs as well from, um, you know, like Dr. Blackledge said, from making um, these prey capture devices and webs to like their own sort of protective casing you yeah. know, and casing for their eggs and things like that. You know, and it got me wondering, you know, if spiders actually have more than one type of webbing. Uh, so let's hear what Dr. Blackledge has to say about that. So that's a great question. So a typical spider like an orb weaving spider has a toolkit of seven to eight types of silks that they can produce so each type of silk is produced in its own gland and is extruded through its own little spigot on the spider's spinnerets and they're going to these silks will have different chemical compositions and different physical properties some will be as stretchy as a rubber band other Others are ounce for ounce stronger than steel. Some are sticky like glue. Others are dry. And so spiders really can take these different types of silks and combine them together to make different functional structures. So we actually see, it seems like spiders are, they're coming up with a lot of different, different ways to solve the problems that, um, uh, that Spider-Man is, you know, when he's, you know, when he's out stalking the, the streets of New York. <laughs> Again, that was fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, the, it, it's almost an, an endless train of questions that, that spurn uh, out of that, um, out of what uh, the doctor shared. Because it's like, now I'm thinking, oh, which comes first? Is it the chicken or the egg? Is this a, and I, I don't know a lot about science, but is this an evolutionary thing where, how does the spider know that it'll need these seven to eight different types of um, silk to produce in its environment? Does it react to uh, things situationally as it develops and then the glands compensate to uh, basically accommodate that need? Or is it something that's just biologically passed down through the generations of spiders and in, in this, uh, you know, this type of spider where, um, you know, you just genetically are kind of gifted with the ability to do this, and it happens to match your environment through evolution. Um, yeah, so I mean, that, I think that's. Help me. I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Things are oh. so much easier with Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah. And so it's one of those things, right? Where I mean, I think that's a that's a really classic question. It's a penetrating question for 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 evolution. I mean, a big part of evolution as a field is asking. How do you get complex things from non-complex beginnings, right? So if we go back through the spider tree, you know, he was saying there's, um, 
I think he said 46,000 species, you know, each of which mm-hmm. has this really complex innovation, you know, which is like a combination of the proteins themselves that they're producing and this complex organ that they can then use to produce different combinations of these proteins and put together for different functions. Like, how do you get that from, from nothing? And, you know, one of, the, one of the old sayings is essentially that, you know, evolution is, is a tinkerer, right? So if you, all, if you go all the way back through the tree of life to like the single, um, you know, spider ancestor that didn't have silk, maybe there was a very basic beginning to spider silk. And then like just having the very basic beginnings of spider silk and the ability to produce it, the individuals that have those things, they survive and they're better able to function and reproduce. And then their children have that thing. And when you look at generations over generations over generations across millions of years, and you get, you know, this really wide diversity of, uh, of functions, you know, associated with this really complex feature that is just, uh, incrementally tinkered with that allows an animal to better fit into a given environment. And as they become better fit, they're able to, you know, potentially better specialize for, for different functions and slight modifications of the tools that they're mm-hmm. using, like their spinnerets and, and silk, it become even further modified. So it's sort of this, this feedback loop that plays, that, that plays out generation after generation. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it's interesting. You mentioned that evolution is the ultimate tinkerer and i guess you could say in in the comic book world to a certain degree maybe there's um reed richards or someone that might challenge him but i'd say peter parker is also one of the ultimate tinkerers in the sense of he's come up against a lot of different challenges uh where maybe his current system and his current web formula doesn't work and he has to put something together specially to stop uh, a new rival that he's not quite prepared for, somebody like the Sandman or something, or or, or some of these other, um, it, you know, enemies that he's encountered where his normal tricks and tactics don't work. And so he goes literally back into the lab to try and figure out scientifically what is gonna, what it's going to take to actually take this next rival down. Yeah. Um, so I, that's interesting that he's a tinkerer as well from a scientific perspective. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that mimics real world scientists. I mean, there's right. this, this idea of biomimicry, right? This entire field of engineers and biologists and chemists that are using the innovations that evolution has come up with that we can see in the natural world. They take those things and bring them into the lab and, and they try to to understand how we can apply those to real world solution, uh, apply those for real world solutions, you know, that we need. Uh, and you see that in a lot of, you know, everything from adhesion, like using things like gecko toe pads to develop adhesives to using, um, you know, different types of desert beetles, like how they design, you know, how their exoskeleton is designed has been used um, to design water bottles that are able to wick water out of desert air environments so that people that are stuck in really arid environments can get water in the same way that those beetles that have evolved in those those habitats have. You know, so this idea of human curiosity and human tinkering, taking advantage of, you know, of the biological tinkering that evolution has, you know, has done in, in the wild generation after generation over millions of years. I mean, in, in that sense, I think, you know, the, the, those two ideas match, uh, match perfectly. And so that, you know, so now we have this, this diversity of thousands upon thousands of, of spiders. So that brings the question, like, who's the best at it, right? Like where, 
you know, if we, you know, if we're talking about Silk's strength, right? If we just take that aspect of it, I mean, because so much of Spider-Man's, um, you know, so many of the feats that he has to use, you know, with uh, with his webbing, you know, is based on the strength of that webbing, right? To be able to like stop a really strong opponent. I think in one, uh, you know, I remember in one issue of Spider-Man, he's actually able to, you know, to restrain the Hulk for some period of time using his webbing. Like that's takes a ridiculous amount of strength, you know? So thinking about him as an engineer, like a bioengineer, like, is there a species that he would go to, to, um, to get inspiration about, um, about designing his, his own artificial silks? So I asked, uh, Dr. Blackledge, uh, I talked to him a little bit about one extreme example of, uh, of a spider that produces an incredibly, incredibly strong silk. And I imagine that if, Peter Parker were actually designing a web formula that allowed him, you know, to restrain extremely strong foes or like stop trains. This is this might be the species that he would use as inspiration. Recently, I've been reading about a really special species that you've worked on, which is the Madagascar Darwin's bark spider. And it seems like the like this particular spider seems to go like above and beyond in terms of like the strength of of its webbing. Can you tell me a little bit about like how is this species discovered? Like, you know, what what is it using this really s- extremely strong web for? Like why does it need such a strong web? Can you tell me a little bit about the evolution and ecology of the species? So certain kinds of silk. So the the dragline silk of an orb weaving spider, that's what most people think of when they think of spider silk in a classical sense. That's the very strong structural thread in a lot of webs. Uh, it is ounce for ounce stronger than steel. But what's really important compared to steel is that it's also very stretchy. If you think about breaking a thin steel wire, as soon as you pull it a little bit, it's really hard to pull it, but as soon as you pull it a little bit, it'll fail. It'll fall apart. Spider silk, you have to keep pulling it harder and harder and harder and harder until it stretches about 20 to 40% of its length before it breaks. And that makes it very tough. That means it takes a lot of work to break it. It's not just a strong but brittle material. That's what's really spectacular about spider silk is this combination of strength and stretchability. Now, what Darwin's bark spider has done under some conditions is made a silk that can maintain that high strength as it stretches even further than typical orb weaver's silks do. And that makes it very, very tough. So how was this? How is this species? Because this this species was only relatively recently described, maybe ten ten years ago. Yeah, it wasn't quite ten years ago. So uh, it was described by my colleagues E. Agnerson and Madshash Kuntner, and they have both traveled the world discovering new species of spiders for a very long time. They knew about the existence of these big webs, these large spiders out in Madagascar, and we were chatting one day at a scientific conference about what kinds of conditions would be likely to make spiders um, evolve better performing silks, essentially, Mm -hmm. and talking a little bit about how there's this trend in traditional orb-weaving spiders where the bigger species actually produce a little bit better quality silk than smaller species. And we, we were thinking, you know, maybe, well, as you get a bigger web, it's harder to catch faster moving insects, so maybe you evolve some better performing silk 
And that got us thinking about, well, what would be kind of the extreme of that situation? And of course, they thought of these giant webs out in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to get the funding for them to go to Madagascar, collect the spiders, bring them back to the laboratory and actually begin to investigate their silks. So one of the one of the things I, I think is really incredible about this, about Darwin's bark spider, right? It's like we have, so now as far as we know, you know, we, we have this one extreme example, right? So like the one species of spider that produces the strongest silk, not only the strongest silk, but the strongest biomaterial that we know of in the entirety of the natural world. Um, and I think that like that's an absolutely phenomenal idea, especially given that, you know, one, it was only discovered, it was discovered less than 10 years ago at this point in this really remote region of the world, Madagascar. Scientists are everywhere, apparently. <laughs> that's the first <laughs> thing I took away from that. I was like, who's in Madagascar, just, just generally speaking? And then who's out there doing science, specifically with spiders? And it's like, oh here's the thing that we all wanted to know and find in nature uh, to study. Um, so I, I'm not entirely surprised that it has only been discovered 10 years ago. Uh, but if you told me no one knew yet, I wouldn't be surprised either. Because if it's hiding out on Madagascar, um, man, that's incredible that people are even able to, to find it. But uh, again, I think it just speaks to how influential nature's design is uh, for us and and how so many of our best ideas are inspired by it yeah and then just kind of hearing the kind of i guess uh, elasticity potential and, and how well the the strand would hold up relative to steel where when you begin to start stretching steel it's going to break apart fairly quickly but i think the doctor mentioned that this will hold 20 to 40 percent of its, uh, you know, in addition to its original length. So you have to stretch it way beyond its original, uh, which you would think its original capacity would be before you start to see a breakdown and a, and a failure. Um, and it's exciting to think that people are studying this and also hopefully potentially figuring out ways in which we can use it to enhance our, our own lives. Yeah. Um, so I think you brought up two great points there, right? I mean, one is that like now we actually, you know, we have this really awesome place to go to, to find a potential solution, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many scenarios where you can imagine like having a very strong, very resilient fiber could be extremely useful, right? I mean, you could find potential military, you know, uses for that, potential medical uses for that, just like everyday engineering uses for that, like building skyscrapers or any number of things, like towing really heavy objects. And now we have this really extreme example that we can go to and, and learn from. And the second thing is, I don't think that there are very many circumstances where someone would come up with the question, it's like, how do we solve this problem? Like, you know, what is the what is the best way, you know, to, you know, to make a really strong fiber and then immediately say, oh, let's go to Madagascar to find that out. Right. So you, you bring up this point that, I mean, there's like this basic exploration factor that's associated with it. Like you never know, like when people think about science, they think about it as something that that happens in a straight line, right? It's like you start at point A and you're like, oh, we want to solve this problem. And then we go to point B and it's like, oh, let's solve this other problem. And we go to point C. But science many mm -hmm. times just doesn't work like that, right? It's this sort of 
meandering exploratory thing you know you go out and you ask some questions but then the answers that you get may lead you down another road yeah uh one of the things that uh that that dr blackledge was saying was that this whole conversation you know about these bark spiders started because they were studying their behavior in this well web building and then that led them to questions of of web strength and you know and now that now we have because of that exploration right that sort of these basic questions of ecology and evolution like now we have this extreme example that we can potentially put to use for for all sorts of applications yeah so one of the things that moving forward with this brings up this whole idea of of bioprospecting especially now because Many of these places, including Madagascar, are being stripped of a lot of their biodiversity because of agriculture, because of deforestation. Um, A lot of these regions around the world that we know very little about are being uh, are under threat because of, you know, human mediated climate change. Um, So I asked Dr. Blackledge a little bit about sort of what this could potentially mean for um, for bioprospecting. Right finding these extreme innovations uh, from the natural world. Yeah, I think it's a really important idea. So when you think about the rate at which extinctions occurring across the globe, we don't really have the time to let random chance find these incredible discoveries out in nature. Uh, The scientific community kind of has to be as smart as it can to discover these kind of extraordinary materials, extraordinary properties and chemicals and things like that that are out in some of these species in very threatened parts of the world. And so if we can become somewhat more predictive about how we're exploring the natural world for some of these treasures, we might be able to find them before they go extinct. So yeah, so as you see, man, our ability to make these discoveries and, and, and make these sorts of innovations is really dependent on scientists around the world being able to actually do the basic research. And, you know, with the current, you know, threats of, um, you know, of climate change and, um, you know, de- deforestation, I mean, a lot of those innovations may have already been lost. Like, who knows, you know, what, you know, things that have gone extinct that, you know, we had yet to discover or had yet to ask the right questions about. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear, and you touched upon this a little bit early, earlier about just the proactiveness of how scientists need to be uh, utilizing their curiosity. So again, it's not just sitting in the lab at home reading through the textbooks or, or theorizing. Uh, it, it's about literally getting out into nature and um, evaluating those ideas and, and testing your hypotheses and 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 looking. For, for clues uh, in certain instances to answers or to questions that you, you know, you didn't even know you were out there in the first place for. And it can lead you down a completely different path. And that's fine. Uh, because, you know, thankfully, I think from an outsider's perspective, it seems like the global scientific community uh, is more than willing to kind of come to the aid of a, a great discovery. And if you happen to stumble upon something that isn't your expertise, I think the scientific community isn't sitting there um, on these expeditions and saying, well, you know, I came out here for like spider strength in uh, silk, but I, I found something about uh, this gecko, but, you know, whatever, not my thing. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave that in Madagascar yeah. and, uh, you know, hopefully somebody else will find that before this gecko becomes extinct. Yeah, uh, not- no, they're, they're, 
yeah. they're, they're taking that finding and they're they're probably passing it along to their colleagues or someone who they know is an expert in the field and and that research and that mantle is, is likely being picked up and, and taken forward uh, and I, I think that's really cool yeah i mean that's uh i mean i think you 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 hit on a key point and that you know one of the ways that science progresses is through um is through sharing of information right i mean that's what the whole field is about there's one thing that we say as as scientists is, I mean, the research isn't isn't worth anything unless you know unless people know what you've done, right? Unless you publish, and the entire process of you know of science is about building on the findings of of those before you, right? Trying to find an intersection, you know, like maybe there was, um, you know, there, maybe there were two scientists who studied seemingly unconnected things and then someone finds the connection between them right and that starts a whole different trajectory you know we see that a lot bioprospecting is you know is one of those examples where you take engineers that are trying to de- you know trying to design optimal materials for different things and you take biomechanics you know people who are studying you know the property properties of of organisms and how they function you bring those two things together and now you have this entire field of bio-inspired engineering um it's really cool yeah. And, and, you know, this is something that we also see, again, like bring it back to Spider-Man. We see this mimicked a lot in the um, in the Spider-Man story arc. Right. I mean, we see like Oscorp as a company. Right. They are essentially a bio inspired company. Right. They do. They have their fingers at, like they're you know, they're the ones who, you know, who modified the spiders that one of which that, you know, bit Peter Parker that turned him into Spider-Man, which was, right. you know, which was also like uh, an unforeseen outcome of of that research. They, you mm-hmm. know, they're doing a lot of things in uh, in robotics, you know, which ended up with. Um, with Dr. Octopus going rogue with his robotic arms. They're doing stuff sure. in, um, you know, like bio, biomedical stuff with like cellular regeneration, you know, that yeah. caused, you know, Dr. Connors to, to become the lizard, right? So they're, they're producing yeah, a lot of stuff as well. Huh? Doctor with with Osborne himself, military stuff with the glider and everything, aerodynamics and all that. And... Exactly. And the super steroid that turns him into, into the Green Goblin. Right. Yep, yep. I mean, so yeah, I mean, they're producing a lot of supervillains <laughs> with, with, <Yeah. laughs> with with their work, but they're actually coming up with some some uh, some pretty innovative stuff. Uh, so so the last thing I wanted to to you know to to talk with Doctor Blackledge about is like just get his take on on Spider Man, right? And and um yeah, and get his perspective, his biological perspective of um of what they've done uh, with with the character uh, in the Marvel universe. Uh, so let's let's hear uh, what he has to say about that. Well, it's all really fun to watch, of course, and and sort of in the uh, broad sense, spiders do a lot of the same things with their silks, but the devil's really in the details, and spiders do it in a very different way. So, of course, you know, Spider-Man has these silk shooters on his wrists that seem to do all these different kinds of silks out of the same nozzle so to speak Mm -hmm. spiders are producing their silks out of different little spigots they have an individual nozzle for each type of silk Um, they also can't actually shoot their silk the way spider-man does that'd be really cool if they could Mm -hmm. but the silk is pulled out of these spigots and so that means that these spiders in madagascar they aren't shooting silk 80 feet across rivers to make the bridge line for their their webs. Instead, they have to let the silk drift out on any breeze or even the warming of the earth uh, from the morning sun as provides enough convection to 
carry a silk thread somewhere. And so it'll blow somewhere, but they can't shoot it. In terms of like those, that webbing being able to withstand his body weight or being able to stop a train, you know, do you, do you think realistically um, uh, spider silk could, could accomplish those feats? Oh, absolutely. Spider silk can easily do those kinds of um, tensile feats, so to speak. So just lifting up bad guys is actually really easy, and there's a lot of synthetic fibers already on the market that, that could do that job pretty easily. But stopping the moving train, for instance, that's a lot harder because now you've got to actually stop this large momentum that's careening off of the tracks. But if you look at kind of, you know, do the back of the hand calculations for how much silk might actually be coming out of his little silk shooters and um, compare that to the material property of spider silk, it's not unrealistic to think that, you know, these, these um, cables of silk that are a couple inches thick might actually be able to stop a moving train. If you get into the nitty gritty details of, well, okay, how much energy would it actually take a spider to produce that much silk that quickly or what would you do with all of the energy that the silk um, basically has to dissipate as it stretches and that energy becomes heat what would happen would it just blow up the silk would it catch on fire you know that's where you get a little less realistic but just the concept of being able to stop a moving train with silk that that's what silk is already doing every day in webs. The reason you're able to walk through a web, even though it's stronger than steel, is that these threads are so minute in size. A typical silk thread is about one one hundredth the size of your own hair. And if it was as thick as typical steel wire, when you take your little walk through the park, you wouldn't just get a web in the face knocked over by it because you wouldn't be able to break it. Yeah, as extreme as uh, as Spider Man's feet seem, yeah, in the in the Marvel universe, um, yeah, it seems like yeah, actual Spider Silk is is up to the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, again interesting um, in terms of the science is there, uh, and you know, when you look at movies and films, hopefully, when they're based on something that's happening in reality. Uh, whether it's with animals or anything else, that the people researching it are, are kind of doing their due diligence on the background of it all to make sure the science holds up. But when you get into the superhero world, you're willing to take some things at, at faith level where you're just buying into this world where certain things can just happen. Um, but knowing that the, the science is there and it's just a matter of uh, capacity and output and, and maybe even energy from a, a biological perspective, it's, if it's an actual spider uh, doing the production of, of this silk. Uh, but knowing that that science is there to back up um, some of the things that we see on the big screen, um, that's huge. Uh, and it's also, you know, as a layperson, I'm like, where's, where's Spider-Man? <laughs> how come he's not out here just just doing his thing yet already yeah. uh it's how we we have materials even in the synthetic world that could even net and capture bad guys yeah. um but i i thought that was cool the one thing one knock on spiders though or you know i don't want to hit on spiders but i'm like mm, that's kind of whack like they can't projectile shoot their silk <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know where evol evolution where are you step up yeah. how come we're not firing off is, is that not valid in, in certain environments yeah step I'm the game up get to yeah, tinkering step, step the game up 
let's 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 change it real quick. Let's 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 take it up a notch. Yeah. All right. Give, give it another couple million years. You know. Yeah. Right. Maybe maybe. maybe yeah. Or what, maybe, what podcast episode will that be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this just in. Yeah. We went back to Madagascar. They're shooting off spider webs. It's yeah. crazy out here. Mil- millions of years later. Um, yeah, millions of years. Yeah, but also, I mean, there's there's also the the off chance that there is a species that actually has some kind of projectile silk that you know that just hasn't That's been true. discovered yet. And that may be more but likely. You're you're absolutely right. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's where we're going to, um, you know, we're going to wrap it up for this particular episode, man. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, you know, some of the fantastical things that we read in, in comic books and science fiction, you know, some of the things that we think may be completely absurd actually can have like somewhat of a biological basis, right? And having those two things feed each other i think having fiction feed science and having science feed fiction i think it brings it brings both along and i think we've seen that time and time again whether it's issues of bioengineering whether it's thought experiments about time travel you know a lot of innovations that you know that we see in science especially like considering things like space travel a lot of those innovations you have to wonder if those things would have come along if it you know if it weren't for for the science fiction that you know scientists saw as kids or even a, or, or even a, even adults, yeah, hundred percent. Um, and yeah, man, this was an absolute blast. This was a great journey into the world of science. Uh, I think I learned a lot about science today. I think the the people listening learned. I didn't know a lot about science today, but we're all here in this journey <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah, that's the cool thing. So we can all grow and learn together. But it, it is, uh, again, I'll use the venom term of, of symbiotic kind of relationship where um, both of these worlds inspire each other, whether it's, you know, the comic sci-fi world or science itself. And uh, in one way, we go to one place to get inspiration and get answers. And then we take the same path and vice versa and go to the other side to get inspiration and get answers uh, or ideas for creativity to create the new superheroes of the day. Yeah. So, uh yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm excited you're doing this, man. Thank you for having me on the journey. I'd love to be a part of it again in the future. And, uh, and I would love to, to have you on again in the future. Um, as a matter of fact, um, we only got through part of, of what I was hoping to get through this episode. Um, so like maybe, um, maybe down the road we can extend it and do, uh, and, and do uh, part two where we go in and explore a little bit more on the bioengineering side of things and uh, talk to a bioengineer about exactly how engineers are are using silks to um you know to create innovative products uh for uh for human use sounds awesome man i'd love to do it awesome well uh thanks again for being on i appreciate you all right cheers peace i really hope you enjoyed episode one of the biology of superheroes podcast In episode two, we'll continue our conversation about Peter Parker and Spider-Man, focusing on the engineering aspects of the character. I sit down with bioengineer Dr. John Klug and we chat about the real-life applications for spider silk, what it would take to design Spider-Man's custom web shooters, and I get his engineer's perspective on the character's origin story. If you like what you've heard so far, like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at The Biology of Superheroes Podcast. Send us your questions on Facebook or email us at biologyofsuperheroes at gmail.com and we'll answer them throughout this series. And with that, I'll say thanks again, stay curious, 
and I'll catch you next month.